in the service, we come to think of the three hours of darkness which we have read from Mark 15. We've thought of the three hours of daylight in the previous verses, and this evening we'll think of the three hours of dusk, and today we think of the three hours of darkness. 11th November 1918 was such a great day, such a memorable day, such a day which had incredible impact on so many lives, nations and peoples. That day when World War I ended, when that armistice was signed at five o'clock in a carriage in a forest in northern France, bringing to an end the conflict of that first World War. What a day it was, a memorable day, a great day, a day to be remembered and celebrated by us. But we're thinking of an even greater day, a day over which Mark, the inspired author, lingers and dwells and wants us in our busy lives to slow down. And one great benefit of communion is that it pulls us in to the very center of God's message, to the very heart of the gospel, to the death of Jesus Christ for our redemption. And this particular segment in this greatest day is the climactic point of all that is happening on that day and indeed all that is happening in history. It is this set of three hours, this period of 180 minutes that the Old Testament has looked forward to with such anticipation, which every sinner's beating heart longed for in the Old Testament and which you and I, by the grace of Christ, for all eternity will look back at these three hours and worship the lamb that was slain as we dwell before the throne of God forever. What moments these were, and, and this, today we have the joy, the privilege, the opportunity of together looking at these wonderful verses in God's word. We're thinking of three outstanding features of the three hours that we've read together from the sixth hour, that's 12 o'clock noon, uh, to three o'clock in the afternoon, the Roman way of calculating time. There's three aspects of these three hours that that we hold up before you uh, to to linger over uh, and to educate our hearts as we come to communion and then leave communion going into our homes and businesses and weak. We're thinking firstly of the cloud, and then secondly of the cry, and then thirdly of the curtain. And these three elements are, are emphasizing that, that Jesus is the atonement maker, that he is our substitute, that his body has been broken for us, that his blood has been shed for us. We're familiar with those assertions about Jesus' atonement in the epistles. Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But here is the historical experience of that theology Here is the the flesh and blood 
working out of Jesus entering into our place and and, and around that historical event in AD 30, there is these indications given in the cloud, then the cry, then the curtain that Jesus is the Lamb of God bearing away the sin of the world. So let's think, first of all, of the the cloud in verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness. Three hours of special cloud covering over the moon and, and the sun at this time. Three hours of bringing, swamping the land, probably Palestine meant here, into darkness. And what does it mean? This supernatural providence, what does it mean? I remember taking a funeral in in Garva uh, not not so long ago, and it was the godliest woman who who was being buried, but it was pouring rain. It was a really dark day. Umbrellas were up, shielding the Bible as I was trying to read at the graveside. And and we were crumbled over, trying to hold ourselves together as the the heavens were were opening and and darkness was over us about 11 o'clock in the morning. And I had three readings. The last reading was from Revelation 22 about but the glory of heaven. And just at that very moment, this incredible ray of sunshine broke upon us and I couldn't see the words on the page. It was so bright. And, and every one of us standing there smiled to ourselves. What a providence this was. Ah, an encouragement to us of the glory of heaven for the departed believer. But this is the opposite. This is the darkness that's covering the land for three hours. And what does it mean? Why does it come? Why does God bring it down here outside the gates of Jerusalem as his son dies? One reason perhaps is that This is creation mourning. Their creator has come into his creation and been rejected by the works of his hands and creation made and upheld by Jesus mourns at such rejection. Perhaps another reason is is the sensitivity which, which God Almighty has in the sufferings of his people, here is his son, declothed outside the gates of Jerusalem in a public place, beside a busy road, and out of gentleness and sensitivity, God shrouds the place in darkness. But the main reason, surely, is that it's It's helping us grasp what's going on here in these three hours on the cross. Here is Jesus dying for our sin. Here is Jesus 
bearing in himself the judgment of God and, and marking his wording here wants us to get this because he, he steals his lines in verse 33 from the Old Testament. Exodus 10 verse 22 underpin the language that he chooses here. It's the plague of darkness in Egypt. There is a divine judgment by God to show the mighty Pharaoh that he is Lord, he is sovereign, and he is displeased with the behavior of that people. And here at the cross, the darkness comes because God's wrath has been poured out upon our sins as borne by Jesus. Amos 8 verse 9 also underpins this act of providence. I will cause the sun to go down at noon and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Amos 8 verse 9. It's a prophecy about God's judgment on his people. They'd gone away from him. And he will do strange things. He will do unusual things which will reflect his displeasure. And here at the cross, in the clear day, at noon, the light is turned into darkness as God lays on Jesus the iniquity of us all. It doesn't befit a, an undertaker to, uh, to arrive at the house of the bereaved in yellow shorts and a red t-shirt. They dress accordingly and befittingly to the circumstances into which they are entering. That the cross as Jesus dies for the sin of the world. There are no blue skies. There is no bright sunshine. There are no birds singing. But there's darkness over all the land. God wants us to grasp this sign, to appreciate this sign. He does so by the extensiveness of this, the land. Some claim it's the whole world. Others claim it's the land of Palestine. Either way, it's more than the city of Jerusalem. This is an extensive darkness in its geography and it's extensive in its duration. For three hours... An eclipse generally lasts for nine minutes, but for three hours there is darkness over all the land. We come to communion today with hearts full of gratitude, full of praise, full of thanksgiving that Jesus went into the darkness that you and I will never go in to the outer darkness which we deserve. Perhaps you're thinking, well, it's not the duration of the, the outer darkness forever. Those who, who end up in separation from God after death is, is their punishment not forever. How can Jesus bear the sin of the world and the punishment that we deserve in this three hours of darkness. How do we understand this? 
And theologians have latched on to that question from congregants and and they have answered what others experience extensively. The Son of God experienced intensively. And we come today. The price is paid. The work is done. The cup of wrath is drunk. The cloud speaks to us of what Jesus is doing here. The substitute taking God's judgment for us. Secondly, in verses 34 to 36, there is the cry, this cry of of dereliction. And and this this is helping us again to understand What is going on in these three hours, boys and girls, when you come to to the road? You used to be taught, you probably still are taught by your teachers, by your parents, to stop, to look, to listen. You're to look for cars, for traffic, for, for bicycles coming down the road. But you're also to listen for those ones, perhaps, that you cannot yet see that are coming round the corner. Stop. To look, to listen. And alongside of the, the looking at the darkness and the cloud for that three hour period, that there is also the words, the only words which Mark records that Jesus spoke from the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? And again, it's helping us. To understand what, what, what's going on here at Jesus' death on the cross. He's entering into our place. Our sins are being imputed to him. And he is bearing in himself the divine judgment for them. An element of God's judgment on our sin is forsakenness. It is putting away the sinner that that doesn't repent out of his light, out of his presence, uh, abandoning him there to to, to the judgment forever. And here, as Jesus takes our judgment, he is forsaken by God. This is the only time that Jesus uses the words, my God. Every time Jesus addresses God and prays to God, he calls him Father. But here in this moment, we feel the distance. We realize there's there's something going on here that's unusual. And it is that Jesus has stepped into our place. And there is this, this withdrawal of the sense of the Father's love as his judgment comes upon him, not for his own sin, but for our sin. Our iniquity, our transgression. Eli, Eli, Sabachthani. It's not Greek, it's not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. And writers have wrestled over why, and Mark does this three times, he preserves the, the original words of Jesus. And, and why, why does he do this? And, and, and perhaps the best suggestion here is that, that any of us, in a moment of extreme suffering and and deep need, we'll we'll cry out in our natural language. And here is Jesus 
in this moment of extreme emotional and psychological and spiritual pressure and agony, calls out in Aramaic, forsaken. We've seen forsaken buildings, not too many in in Newton Arts, but some are. Formerly a place of business and bustle and noise and talk and whistling and work and people. Now they're derelict. Broken windows, leaking roofs. Plants growing out of the chimneys. Forsaken. A shell of its former self. And here is the Son of God. Forsaken. The sense of his Father's love and presence and grace withdrawn from him, forsaken. God is there, but the sense of his love and support is not there, forsaken. What words are these? Mark is pulling us up close now, isn't he? Right to the very cross. We can see the wood. He wants us to hear the words. We, we're fascinated, aren't we, with, with that recording of, of the first man on the moon, that, that crackling, the first words that, that Neil Armstrong spoke as he stepped onto the moon, and, and, and we hear them, and, and they, they, they fascinate us, and they, they pull us in. Isn't that incredible? Those words spoken from the moon, and, and here is Mark, and he's saying, listen to this. This is what he said. In the depths of his suffering, in the very moment of atoning for our sin. Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. And we thank him. We thank him for taking our place, for being forsaken. That we will never be forsaken. The cloud, the cry, then thirdly, the curtain. Verse 38 the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a 25 meter curtain, it was deeply, heavily embroidered, it was the centerpiece. Of all the tabernacle furniture. But once again, the verse indicates God steps in here, verse 38, from top to bottom. Supernaturally, this curtain which separated it, and I think it's the, the inner curtain, though the text doesn't say that, but Hebrews seems to indicate this the inner curtain which separated the holy place from the most holy place, through which the high priest alone could go one time per year. This curtain of separation, which kept the people out, was torn from top to bottom. And this tangible, this visible, this corporeal action was emphasizing the the supernatural and spiritual work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He has died for our sins. And as a result of this, the curtain is torn in two. 
What does it symbolize then? What does it mean? Well, it means, doesn't it, that the the ceremonial sacrifices and rules are finished. The temple is over. The priesthood, the offerings, the incense, the tabernacle temple building has come to an end. The rending of the curtain indicates that Christ, the substance, has fulfilled all that was typified in the Levitical laws. It also indicates the destruction of the temple in AD 70, of which Jesus prophesied in chapter 13 of Mark. But supremely, it indicates that the way to God has been made open, that the Old Testament believers looked forward to this very moment, that we look back to this very moment, these three hours of darkness when Jesus Under the cloud, when Jesus utters the cry, when Jesus, the Son of God, takes our sins and appeases the wrath of God, God is saying, he has done it. The way is open. And any child, any teenager, any man in any continent can come to me through the merits, through the work of Jesus Christ. The most visited place in the UK is Buckingham Palace, has received for many years the best awards for groups, and 300 groups a day would visit Buckingham Palace. They want to be in the presence of the Queen. They want to see where she lives. They want to be close to her. They want to be familiar with where she lives. God's allowing us in. He's opening up the curtain. The way has been made by Jesus Christ in laying down his life in the broken bread and the poured out wine. Jesus gives his life that you and I might live and enter into the presence of God, that we can receive forgiveness and reconciliation with God, that we can draw near in prayer before our God, that we, after this life, will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so we come to communion today with humble hearts, but with grateful hearts. He entered the darkness of God's judgment for us. He uttered the cry of forsakenness as he stood where we should stand forever. And he has opened up the way whereby we can come to God in peace, reconciliation, and forgiveness.